This is Tending Seeds, a podcast about my adventures in homesteading and herbalism. I'm Sarah Schuster, and I'll be your host. Thanks for being here today. Hey, friends. We're back with our final interview episode for the 2020 season, and it's such a lovely conversation. I'm speaking with Lucy Jones, an herbalist and herb grower who is also the author of a wonderful book called Self-Sufficient Herbalism. Lucy's publisher, Eon Books, has been kind enough to share a discount code for our listeners to get 20% off if you wish to get a copy of your own, which I think after hearing this conversation, you will definitely want your own copy. That discount code will be in the show notes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please help us keep reaching more listeners by subscribing and rating the show and sharing it with a friend or two. You can connect with me over on Instagram at Fox and Elder or through our farm shop at foxandelder.com. And if you feel like kicking in a little to keep the show going, you can support us over on Patreon, and I would so appreciate it. Plus, all Patreon supporters receive a 20-page booklet from me every month, and who doesn't like getting something in the mail that's not a bill? Your support also helps me to be able to budget more time to put into the podcast. I would really love to be able to commit to doing weekly episodes starting this January if I can afford to take that time away from the farm. All right, I want to get on to the interview because I think you're going to get so much out of it and be really, really inspired. Lucy has such an incredible story of how she came to the plant path and opened her clinic, and she has so much love for the plants and amazing knowledge to share with us today. Enjoy. Lucy Jones is a medical herbalist with a busy high street practice, Miraboulin Clinic in Somerset, UK. She grows or gathers the majority of the herbs that she works with and is a passionate proponent of self-sufficient herbalism. Prior to qualifying in Western herbalism, she studied Tibetan medicine with the great master, Kenpo Troro Seham. This experience deeply influences her approach to therapeutic practice, as well as the way that she grows and processes her herbs. She originally trained in agriculture and forestry and has two degrees from the University of Oxford. Her book, Self-Sufficient Herbalism, is published by Eon Books. Lucy, thank you so much for being here today. I am so excited to talk to you. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited as well. I love the chance to talk about herbs and herbal medicine. Well, you are in the right place then because our listeners love to hear all about it. As we get started, could you maybe tell us a little bit about what first drew you to herbalism and the plant path? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, when I look back on, you know, look, look back on my life, and hopefully there's plenty more of it to go, but, you know, looking back on it <laughs> so far, um, I feel like I've always, the, everything that I've done and every experience has really felt as though it's bringing me to where I am now with this full-time practice. So when I was young, I used to spend so much time with plants, you know, even as a really young girl, I would always be wanting to go out and hang out with trees or I'd be sitting in the garden. And I was just always very, very drawn to plants. And I had a little plot to grow my own, you know, my parents thought it would be nice for me to have a little bit of a garden. Uh, but I always felt, I remember thinking that I didn't want to just grow pretty things. I always wanted to grow medicinal things, <laughs> even from a young age. I just, I just knew, I, I just thought if you're going to grow something, you know, I, I also would um, grow some 
edible stuff as well but I was really drawn to herbs from the very outset so it was kind of a I guess I don't know whether the plant path chose me or whether I chose it but it was just inevitable that I would end up where I am now I guess so yeah it was my love of plants and I think as well that I did have a a deep sort of sense that herbs can really transform people's lives and my my initial way into being a medical herbalist was through that sense of wonder about herbs and wanting to kind of fulfill that potential of helping people with them but of course it's all interwoven into my journey with being a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner and being fascinated by that approach to medicine. So Tibetan medicine is a very, very much a spiritual approach. And so that was kind of like my first point, I suppose, at which I really began to enter the, the therapeutic plant path. And, um, there's a little story about that actually and (laughs) what it is is that I had I discovered that this great master Kempo Truro Tsenam was coming was being allowed to come over to the UK to teach a small handful of students uh, of westerners and it, it was a really unprecedented thing and it was literally going to be just a couple of handfuls of people. So, you know, probably a dozen. And I really felt like this is what I want to do. I I really, really want to do this course. And I asked my spiritual teacher, Akon Rinpoche, would it be okay if if I could be one of those people? You know, I really wanted to do it. And he just said, no. And I was, I was absolutely devastated because I'd really built up in, in, you know, my own thought that this was part of my destiny and I was so drawn to it and I really felt this great drive to do it. And he just flatly said no. So I, I was a bit gutted, <laughs> but I wasn't going to give up. So um, about two or three months later, the course still hadn't started, you know, it was a way off. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to try again. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to ask him again. So I, I went through the process of like getting a slot with him and having a private interview and, and kind of raised it again and said, please, would you consider me? I really feel such a drive to do this. And he just said, no, the course is for people who are already qualified in another therapeutic practice. So there were GPs and midwives and other practitioners who were going to be taking the course and because I wasn't yet a qualified practitioner in any modality I wouldn't be eligible to take the course and I was really gutted I I went away from that and I just thought this isn't how my life is supposed to go you know this I know I'm supposed to be doing that course and then I thought about it I thought (laughs) in Tibetan medicine or in in Tibetan um Buddhism actually there's there's this kind of if you read some of the histories there's basically many examples of where people have had to ask three times for things or you know try really show commitment and I kind of thought about this and I thought I'm gonna I'm just gonna go for it I'm gonna really 
go for it and ask that third time and maybe that's <laughs> going to work. And I, and I also thought about how important this opportunity was and how it wasn't just about like me doing it because I would find it interesting. I could see that it was an, a really important seeding of knowledge into the West in, in probably a very authentic way, because I'm sure that the way that it was able to be taught to Westerners would perhaps be a little bit of a different emphasis from how it could be taught sort of um, within China. And um, so I asked again, and I, I think I was a bit more conscious of the weightiness of how important it is. And I, I asked and I said that I'd be prepared to do anything and I would qualify afterwards in any other modality if he felt that that would be helpful. And he kind of, you know, he looked at me in his way of kind of like looking right into me and he said, okay, you can join, but I would like you to commit to studying Western herbal medicine after the Tibetan medicine course. And also I would really like you to start a practice that combines Tibetan medicine with Western herbal medicine. That is what I would like you to do. So I kind of, I was thrilled and I was excited, but I had a mission, you know, I had a deal that I'd made. And this clinic, Marobolan Clinic, is a direct result of that conversation. And the fact that I went on to study Western herbal medicine for another six years after four years of, of studying Tibetan medicine. So it's quite a process, but yeah, I did get in in the end. <laughs> wow, that is absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. I had been looking around at your blog, you have some amazing articles, and I was just learning a bit more about the basis for, you know, Tibetan medicine, because it was very new to me. And I saw a photo of you during your studies over there in Scotland. And in the caption for it, it said you were actually very close to giving birth as well. And this <laughs> explains, <laughs> yeah, it's a great photo. And the story kind of explains it too, because you do sort of have this glow to you, but there's also just a lot of joy on your face and just a sense of like purpose. And obviously from the story you just told you, you had been given sort of that purpose that this wasn't just a, a one-time course for you, that this was actually going to shape the direction of the rest of your life. That is so incredible. <laughs> that, you know, that, the, that photo, I don't think I, I mentioned on my blog, but it was a really, when that was um, a very interesting point about pragmatism in, in um, natural medicine, because, you know, it, it was an amazing opportunity to be sitting there with that incredible great master and like he was holding my hand and it was so lovely and you couldn't help but be joyful. But I had just asked him, I mean, I, it was that was my first child. I've got two now. And um, well, they're not really kids anymore. But you know, that was my first pregnancy. And I naively thought that I'm gonna ask this great Tibetan master, you know, are there any tips for having a smooth birth, you know, and I, I suppose in my mind, I thought he might show me some special pressure point or, 
you know, some kind of like breath control meditation or, you know, something like that. And, yeah. and I just thought, oh, how awesome will that be? You know, and I'll just have this really easy labor and it's all going to be great. And it's all going to be really, you know, spiritual. And he, he, this great master, very, very pragmatic. And he probably knew that you can't just tell somebody to do something like that and they not practice it and really take it on board so he just looked at me and he said just use western medicine it's going to be much better for you (laughs) (laughs) and I think that really you know it was great because what a skillful thing to do you know you're you're like opening that up just be pragmatic just do what you need to do you know it's not the end of the world if it's not herbal (laughs) That is too funny. I, I love that. <laughs> so do I. So your story, your your path was that you started by studying Tibetan medicine. And then you were also sort of given the charge to also learn about Western herbalism. And then to combine those two into your practice, which I find so fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about your clinic in terms of how long has it been open that you've been seeing clients? What's the day-to-day like? What What sort of clients are you seeing there? Yeah, of course. So <clears throat> I started in 2006, but in, in those days I was working from home. And I actually, because I'd already studied the Tibetan medicine and I was kind of seeing people a little bit unofficially, I suppose. And I remember that when I officially launched, I I, I had my graduation. I, you know, I was kind of legally registered and had my professional insurance and everything and I could properly start to to see patients officially and I I remember feeling quite excited and pleased because I I already had people booked into my diary like you know the week after I graduated so it it always started I was quite steadily um, seeing patients from the very beginning. And, and since then it, it has got a lot busier, but, you know, I was, I was always kind of going to start off as I meant to go on. And now, um, I have a high street premises in a small market town in Somerset in the UK. And that is, it's kind of a, a rural area, but not remote, you know, there's quite a lot of small towns around and because this is a I suppose it's a little bit central in terms of the south um, west of the UK and it's so there's sort of plenty of catchment area for people and it's it's a lovely friendly town and anyway I'm lucky to have this high street premises which used to be a a little cafe so it has um, a food hygiene certified sort of kitchen area where I can make all my herbs so what I, I have is like a front room that is onto the high street uh, with a shop window. And then at the back, there's this kitchen and then there's a little bathroom and a, a, a herb storage kind of room. And it's just so ideal for me. And the way that I run it is that it's not, I'm not a shop where people can just come in and buy things. I'm very much here for for my patients who are booked. And then two mornings, I mean, this is like pre-COVID, two mornings a week, I have like an open session where anyone can come in without an appointment and ask for my advice. And I can 
you know, qu quickly kind of see whether an over-the-counter remedy is going to help them or give them a bit of advice. And, um, and I really love that because it feels as though that's my way of giving something a little bit back to the community. And, um, you know, I have sort of elderly patients and pensioners and people who kind of come in and I, I just say, oh, you know, you don't need an appointment, just, you know, come back and tell me how you're getting on. So it, me it gives me a bit more flexibility, but the rest of the time I'm pretty full on with um, seeing patients, even now with not seeing anyone face to face, I'm seeing people on video call full time. And just before um, our interview now, I was seeing a patient who's actually a general practitioner, which is always an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting thing where those two worlds meet and we have a good discussion. But I have so, so, uh, many different types of patients. I, I love it, you know, and people from all walks of life. So from the kind of conventional medical side of things to people who would only ever consider to um, natural or holistic approaches and everyone in between and all sorts of different health conditions from acute conditions like, you know, flu really for example uh, to some really complicated chronic conditions with for people who have not really been able to get the answers that they need from taking a more conventional approach and I think that because in any holistic practice we can piece all the different aspects of someone's health together and see the links and prescribe accordingly and advise on perhaps diet and lifestyle changes, we can really get quite a different approach. I remember once I was treating a patient who was actually a consultant neurologist and I felt a bit, you know, <laughs> I felt a bit um, strange about this situation because I thought, I didn't know how much I could persuade him to go down a, a natural route, but he had, I can't even remember the details of his case, actually. I've, I'm trained, I train myself to sort of let go of it when people go out the door, but <laughs> I remember him, him um, saying, it was really nice of him, actually, at the end of the initial consultation, which is around about an hour and a half to two hours, I really like to go into a lot of detail. And he said to me at the end, he said, that is so fascinating. You made connections between different aspects of my health that I never would have thought of. And he said, and it all makes so much sense. So I thought that was really lovely from somebody who'd been trained in a very kind of conventional medical model to, to see the value of holistic medicine in that way. But anyway, I, I'm, I've diverged from the point. The point, I guess, is that I'm very full-time and I see a lot of different patients and I love it. No, that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, I'm, over the last two years, I've started seeing clients as well. So it's always really great to talk to other practitioners and see what their experience is. And I completely agree with you about doing nice long intakes. I always tell new clients that, you know, that first intake, it takes however long it takes. And I just want to get them talking and cover as much as I can, because it's always amazing. The little, the small details, like you said, that you kind of pull together 
And suddenly there's that light bulb moment of kind of plucking these little threads and figuring out like, Ooh, I think we need to go in this direction, but that's really great that, you know, your clients, even if they've, they're already working in the more standard medical field, that they're open to that and that they recognize the value in doing those longer initial consultations too. Maybe we can slowly start to change some things. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. I, I, I do I do get that message from those kind of patients a lot. Like, oh, I wish we could spend more time. You know, you've shown me how much value there is in in taking the time. So maybe it is slowly going to make a difference. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) I really hope so. Well, so you're already quite busy with your clinic. And that's, you know, a full-time job in and of itself. But then you also grow or forage and gather the majority of the herbs that you use And so I've loved all the photos of your allotment space there where you're growing. Could you talk maybe a little bit about what you're growing in your allotment, uh, where you're going out to gather and forage near you and, and just about the herbs that you're growing? I most certainly can. (laughs) Now we get to the good part. Yeah. (laughs) So I have this, I mean, um, some of your listeners might not be familiar with the concept of allotments. I don't really know if it's kind of more of a UK thing or not, but. Oh, it is. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind explaining that. Yeah. So when before, like, basically I moved to this little town where I have my high street practice and moved here with my family in 2013. So, um, and before that I had a, a field that had been loaned to me by a local organic farmer. And it was probably about, I I don't know, half an acre or or more. And I had all this luxury of space to grow what I wanted. And I, I had this beautiful herb garden. And then when we we moved here, it was kind of a a bit of a sudden thing. And um, I was a bit, worried about how I was going to continue growing my herbs. And I thought, no, I can do it. I can get an allotment. So in the UK, the allotments have been going for centuries in one form or another, but they became much more prominent after the um, Second World War. And basically returning servicemen were kind of encouraged to take up plots of land. They could rent them at a very affordable rate. And it was to encourage people to sort of keep healthy and to be able to grow their own vegetables. And this system still persists where wherever you live, you can apply to be allocated this a piece of land and it's the size I, I people have asked me for ages how big is it and I've always said oh I don't know you know and before um, I knew I was going to talk to you and I thought I bet you're going to ask how big it is and I really ought to know so I looked it up and the standard size of an allotment in the UK is a very old it's 10 poles and apparently a pole is like an Anglo-Saxon um, measurement that's still in use for these things. It's like, it's a really ancient thing. And anyway, I thought, well, I 10 poles doesn't really help me, but for <laughs> everyone else, I looked it up and apparently 10 poles is the same as 250 square meters, which is apparently the same as like a tennis court that's for doubles games. Okay. Well, thank you for looking that up for us. And that's a great visual. And, and so that seems like a pretty good amount of room then that you're growing on. 
Well, it does, doesn't it? I was thinking, is it really that big? But it's sort of long and narrow. It's 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 like a tennis court, kind of extended and narrow. But yeah, it is it is a decent amount of of ground, and I do grow a lot of things. So when I had to move away from my field, I spent like a, quite a while potting everything up and transporting it and moving it. So my my growing although it compressed i was able to bring with me the important things and i grow um on that space i have about 50 different medicinal plants that i'm growing um it does vary you know like i have little phases of adding something or or maybe i lose something else but it's around about 50 and it's a lovely space to hang out and um, I'm able to kind of to grow some stuff that I wouldn't be able to get otherwise. So it's a really important thing for me. But I also need to forage in order to provide enough quantity for my clinic. So anything that I can forage locally I'm going to do so in order to reserve my growing space for plants that I really can't get any other way. So I'm kind of quite organized about what grows where. So I have um I have this allotment, which is 10 poles in size. <laughs> then I have about, I forage probably about around about 70. I mean, actually, when I was kind of going through it in my head, it was 72 plants that I forage regularly each year. Um, and then I also have a really tiny little garden where we've moved to. And in there, I, I grow a lot of plants for the experience. So rather than it being um, a significant crop for my clinic, it's more like I'm growing Tibetan plants or rare plants that are just in maybe even in a pot or in a small bed. And it's more like a a nursery area, I suppose, than being a cropping area. But I still have a few things there that, you know, I've got some gorgeous big rosemary bushes and, you know, I take my harvest from there. So it's kind of, you know, it's a small growing area. Um, And then, of course, on top of that, although I am passionate about self-sufficient herbalism, I would never pretend to be 100% self-sufficient. So I do have to buy in some herbs so they kind of add to to what the herbs I work with but the majority I do grow and gather and I I know that that's right part of your question was about where I gather things I think if I remember rightly and yeah so around here um because it's a small town in quite a rural area we've got you know, beautiful um unspoilt areas of woodlands and green lanes, which were um, drove roads for um, animals being driven for sort of um, by on foot, you know, being driven to market from farms, you know, in, in older times. So we, we have these network of very old tracks and byways, which of course, you know, uh, are pretty unspoiled in that they're not cultivated. There's ancient hedges on either side and a really good diversity of native medicinal plants there that I'm also not too far from the coast where I can gather seaweeds and you know it's I'm very lucky I've learned my foraging territory in inverted commas Um, I know where to find things and I'm constantly trying to 
improve my knowledge of that and, and find more plants that I'm able to access from the wild. So beautiful. I mean, this just sounds like a, a dreamy, I, I know it's a lot of hard work, but it also just to me as an herb lover sounds like such a dreamy existence to have a garden at home and your allotment. And it sounds like very nearby places to be able to go and forage and gather and I was just sort of tallying as you spoke that, so you're growing or gathering over 120 herbs for your practice. Um, well, I, I added them all up because I thought you're <laughs> bound to ask. And yes. <laughs> actually I tallied them all up and I would say, okay, so I buy in, I do buy in about 70 herbs, but the quantity of those that I use is not as much. So it's kind of in volumes. I'm probably emphasizing more on the homegrown, but I would say that I probably work with around 300 different medicines in my practice by the time. So there's like probably about 260 odd plants that I work with. But by the time you have some plants where you use different parts in a different way, I'm probably working with around 300 medicines Wow. That's so much. That's really impressive. I, I hope I get to that point someday. <laughs> so you obviously have a lot going on. Like we said, the clinic could be a full-time job in and of itself, growing and gathering all of these herbs and then processing them into you know the medicines for, for your clients. It's so much time and kind of selfish. I think I had a little bit of a selfish motivation for wanting to bring you on the podcast because one of the messages I've gotten as I've entered the herbal world is people telling every people telling us that, you know, you need to pick one thing. If you want to grow herbs, grow herbs. If you want to see clients do that, if you want to make herbal products, you know, do that. And I'm very stubbornly saying, no, I want to do all of it. I was really excited to find you on Instagram several years ago and start following your work because you're just doing so much with the clinic growing and gathering your, your herbs, making your products, you do speaking engagements and teaching, you've now written a book. And so for me, it was like, okay, here's someone who is managing to check all the boxes and do all the things and not having to pick just one. And, and that was really inspiring to me. And so I like to ask all of my guests who always seem so busy, but especially you with all these different ventures that you have, how are you balancing your time without getting overwhelmed? Could you maybe talk about time management or maybe what a normal week looks like for you? How are you splitting up your days? Yeah, and, and I'm really happy to hear that you refuse to be categorized into just doing one <laughs> part. I think that herbs, you know, it's, it is a balance. And I think that our herbal medicinal tradition is a beautiful art and all of the skills that we have around growing gathering and making medicinal products and treating patients if that's what we're drawn to do then you know that is all part of it and it's kind of seems crazy to I accept that some people will feel more comfortable in sort of specializing in one area and that's absolutely fine but I think that it is a natural thing to want to balance our work and to, you know, be involved in, in creating the medicines and all of that that it entails. And of course, it is busy. Uh, I am very organized. Mm -hmm. I, I am careful about time management. And I do have quite 
well-defined boundaries. So I do try to, you know, I, I like to give people plenty of time and I will block out plenty of time, but I will really try and aim to keep within that. Because of course, as one gets busier, like at that, that's quite important to be able to give your energy and time to others, you know, that, so, so that is one thing. And also I think that um, the herbal growing and gathering side is like my being able to diffuse after the intensity of seeing patients mm. um, because I, I absolutely love seeing patients, but it can be a, a very intense thing. It can be quite harrowing sometimes. And so it's important to, I feel it's important for me to only book in the number of people that I can give my full attention to and so that everybody that I take on as a patient, I'm able to give my utmost to them and to help them to get better. And if I burn out or become, you know, fed up or cynical or tired, I'm not going to be able to help anyone. So I am quite, I've learned now to kind of to say to people, look, I know you really want an appointment next week, but I'm so sorry, you're going to have to wait. Mm-hmm. And in, in the early days, I used to think, oh, poor thing, you know, because every, everyone, of course, you know, when you're feeling unwell and you want to sort it out straight away and everyone's really insistent, like, oh, I need to see you now. And actually, it's it can be really good to kind of to ask people, look, I would, you know, I'm sorry, I'm I'm pretty fully booked at the moment, but I can offer you an appointment at this time. And, you know, hopefully we can talk then. And it's actually quite good because it means that it's not just a whim. People are really committed and, and feel like, yeah, I really want to follow this treatment through. I've really thought about it and I'm going to go for it. And, and I actually think that, you know, I mean, obviously I would love to help everyone straight away, but it's about just being able to survive and not burn out and, and be measured and take on what I can do well and, you know, not, not get overrun. So, yeah, I think that's a bit of an art and it has taken me (laughs) quite a while to to figure it out. And the other thing about how I, um, in inverted commas, cope with all of this is that firstly, I love it. But secondly, I'm so lucky because it is my mission. You know, I, I have this deal that I made with my spiritual teacher. So even when I've had a really tough day and I think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm so tired. I don't know how I've been able to see all of these patients. Or, But then I remember that, you know, giving up is just not an option. So it's just not ever going to be an option. And, and I joyfully appreciate that. But it takes you through those days where perhaps, you know, we all have days that are a bit harder than others and it, and I just can't ever give that any energy because I think no this is my destiny this is what I'm doing I'm not going to let my spiritual teacher down he's died now so I I have even more you know I can't even ask him like oh can I just do this I have to just plow on and luckily overall you know really I'm living the dream and I'm so lucky I absolutely love it Oh, that's so beautiful. And and I understand exactly what you're saying, where when you have those tough days, giving up isn't an option, you might need to make some adjustments, but you know, you're in this for good. But also just what you're saying about that need to balance 
your desire to be of service to everyone with also setting boundaries for yourself so that you don't get burnt out. I think that's a really difficult skill for many of us in this, in this world to learn, but so necessary. So I'm glad to hear you've figured that out for yourself at least. And uh, on your website, I was, your frequently asked questions. There was a question there about that. A lot of people often ask if they can go with you uh, and volunteer to help you with gathering the plants. And you always are very respectfully declining because that is your time to recharge. And I just thought that was so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say that I get still so many requests and it's it's quite a big chunk of my time replying to those, which is why I have it on the frequently asked questions, but it is my time to recharge and I'm absolutely not going to you know because it's such a different energy isn't it much as I love hanging out and talking and like explaining about herbs that it's it's a completely different energy from just quietly going and being with the herbs in a, in a completely meditative state on your own you know is a very different thing right no it is it's completely different I don't even when I'm working out in the fields here in the gardens I don't bring you know, music or podcasts or anything with me. I just want to be fully present, you know, with the plants. And I mean, those are my, con- sometimes that's the best conversation I have all day is just me with the plants. <laughs> oh, you're not alone in that. <laughs> <laughs> so in addition to, you know, we touched on how satisfying it is for you at a heart level, but why was it so important to you to be growing your herbs yourself? Obviously it could have been a lot easier for you to have a full-time clinical practice and purchase your herbs elsewhere and bring them all in. Um, so why was it so important to you to, to want to do this work yourself? Oh, that's a great question. I think like many herbalists, I was drawn to following this path because I absolutely love plants. I love being around plants. I love growing them. I love the smell of them. And it just doesn't make sense to shut away that whole part of my life and buy in packets of dried herbs that I don't know how they've been treated. I don't know what attitude the person has had while they were picking them. It doesn't, to me, you know, for my, for my practice, that doesn't make sense. Why would I give up a huge love of my life in order to be, in inverted commas, more efficient and see more people. I think that with herbal medicine, seeing patients which might be more, how can I say, in some ways more challenging than the growing part, not, of course, the growing part is challenging in itself and it's physically very demanding, but seeing patients is is emotionally, can be emotionally demanding. It's also incredibly rewarding and wonderful because people get better and it's the best thing ever to see them blossoming. But I think that we have that balance within our art of being able to grow and gather and then treat patients. And I think that it's almost as though the plants provide that nourishment for us to avoid us being burnt out and that it's a real partnership with the plants And to just think of them as a commercial input and, oh, you know, it takes ages to grow them. So I'm just going to buy them in. That doesn't feel in the same way, such a healthy partnership. 
So I, I don't want to sound as though I'm criticizing people because I know not everyone is in the position to grow and I'm not trying to be like that about it, but I do want to emphasize how much it brings to us to be able to grow even on a small scale. There is a real nourishment, which means in turn that we can be more effective as healers and more grounded and balanced and maybe, you know, bring more benefit to other people by having that influence of being with the plants, the real plants. Yeah, I completely agree. And and I don't think you're being critical at all. I, I hope that if anyone listening to this does have an herbal practice and they're not growing a lot of their plants currently, like you said, even if you just pick a few to start growing, if space is limited, just having that connection is going to be so vital for yourself, for your own uh, energy and re- replenishing just your vitality. I, I think, you know, the flow of my days where I get to go out and work with the plants in the mornings and then afternoons are usually for putting herbal products together or doing client work. And there is sort of a, a really beautiful rhythm to that where one sort of rolls into the other. And I just feel very nourished from being able to switch from those different activities back and forth. And so I just hope that anyone listening that, you know, maybe they'll be able to incorporate a little more of each into their life, hopefully, and and get back to that balance that you spoke of. So a lot of folks listening are have home gardens, and may not have an herbal practice, but are growing herbs or interested in growing herbs for themselves to use, you know, in their home with their families. And I get a lot of questions from people about how do I dry my herbs and, and store them. And so one of the things you focus on in your book is proper drying methods for the herbs. And I thought it was really fascinating because a lot of times when people talk about drying herbs, they treat all herbs the same that, you know, you just do this one thing, one technique. And so I really liked the nuance that you brought to that of of talking about how to dry particular things. And so I was wondering if you could discuss that a little bit um, and maybe walk us through one or two examples of specific herbs and how you process them. Yeah, I will. But what I would say is I think part of the motivation of me writing the book in the first place was that I saw how many times, you know, through seeing people on social media, I saw how herbs were just being wasted really by not being dried effectively. And and I'm not the kind of person that would go and rain on someone's parade and say oh you think you've done it wrong like obviously one doesn't do that but it's kind of I just feel it's so sad to see these beautiful medicinal beings not being able to fulfill their true potential because quite clearly they had hadn't been treated as well as they could be so part of my motivation for writing the book was to encourage people to be more aware of how to produce the best possible quality medicine that we can, whether that's for ourselves or whether it's for um, patients or whether it's for making products. I think the herbs deserve that. And so, um, but it's, but it's not just about drying. So I will definitely answer your question about drying because I think that's only part of it. And if the herb has, for example, been harvested and stored badly before being dried, it's not going to be okay. So it wouldn't properly answer the question to just only talk about the drying. And I just want to give a couple of examples that I do see as being an, a, 
an area where it's worth reviewing our practice. One of the things is that as soon as you pick a herb or at least an aerial part, so the, the flowers or the leaves or the stems, as soon as it is harvested, it starts to slowly deteriorate. And I make it a rule really that as far as possible, I will harvest these um, herbs and then bring them back to my processing area, usually within an hour or quite often half an hour of picking. And what I do then is I will lay them out in a single layer, even if I don't have the dryer space to um, start them officially in their drying process. And I will talk about the drying process in a, in a minute. Mm-hmm. But the, the thing that I see a lot of is people will harvest stuff and pile it into a basket and then maybe say, oh, you know, I've got this beautiful basket of stuff and I'm going to sort it out tomorrow or something. And that is already going to be a much lower quality product because if it's piled in more than a single layer for any length of time, it will be the, the lower part of that basket will be being compressed as the plant wilts there is a more, the weight of the plant material above the bottom layers will mean that the bottom layers are bruising Mm -hmm. and bruised plant material does not dry well and it doesn't retain its properties well and it starts to ferment. So look, I've seen this unfortunately myself and I would just jump in a second to say if anyone's ever done this with uh, lemon balm, for instance, you can, that bruising is very visible and like an oxidization almost. And it's just really sad to have a whole, you know, a basket of herbs and then you get down to the bottom of it and you go, this just doesn't look nice anymore. It's, it's such a shame, isn't it? And of course, the oxidation process and the fermentation, it's like it's the same process that is used to make black tea because the, bla- the tea leaves are kind of crushed and bruised on purpose and then left to ferment. And that's why they go black. And, you know, that's fine for black tea, but it's not really fine for a medicinal herb that we want to use in its as natural state as possible. Mm-hmm. So I think harvesting and, and being very careful of, about the way that we, we prepare them. And then the other thing that I do see, it sounds like a bit of a catalog of, of complaints, but anyway, I see people stripping the leaves from stems by running their fingers down. Now that is a very quick way of doing it. And it's absolutely great if you are, for example, going to use those fresh leaves immediately in uh, cooking or or making a product like say pesto or something like that. It really doesn't matter if they're slightly bruised, but to do that, to take the leaves from a stem by running your fingers down and sort of pulling them off means they will be bruised and you will not get such a good medicinal product when they're dried. So that's another thing to watch out for. (laughs) But so it's kind of like, I guess it's harvesting them. Don't leave, leave them in a basket sort of piled up for too long. And also removing, if you want to remove the leaves from the stem, then to do that very carefully, like just snip them off. And at all points, you know, think this is, I don't want to bruise these. I want to just treat them with respect and keep them as unblemished as possible when they go into my drying system. Now, 
drying. It totally depends on on the plant and it's not logical to have a blanket piece of advice for all plants. And it's also depends, it depends on the season and the weather. So for example, with elderflower, I've noticed over the years that if I gather elderflowers after a a drought period, you know, if there's been a really hot spring and the soil is very dry, and then I gather those elderflowers, um, they might feel more or less the same as any other year, but they take far less time to dry than the flowers that I've picked after a period of wet weather. And of course, I never pick anything that's wet, so I will never pick during wet weather. But if the previous week has been wet and then there's like a dry sunny day and I think great I've got I can go and harvest my elderflowers because they're dry I find that they can take maybe three times as long to dry as the ones that were picked when the soil was dry because I I guess the moisture content in the flowers and in in the flower stems is going to be higher and it makes sense doesn't it so it's about adjusting one there's no sort of definitive instruction this is how you do it but in my book I just give you know these are some guidelines and you know start at this temperature start at this time and then review it and the the guidelines are really around if you are drying something that's very aromatic like say peppermint or lemon balm you if you're using a dehydrator which is what I do um, you don't want to have too high a temperature because that way you will lose the aromatic compounds. You know, they will be driven off. So I would start for those at about, you know, 100 degrees um, Fahrenheit and just sort of go really gently and then maybe increase the temperature a little bit um, towards the end if they're still not drying. Because there's a bit of a trade-off between the time it takes to dry something and not over drying it and not losing the aromatic properties. But of course, for people that don't have a dehydrator, if you live in a dry environment, it's perfectly okay to dry things by hanging bunches of herbs in an airy place. But the thing to look out for is not to have those bunches too big because the central stems will tend to not get a good airflow and they might start to develop mold. And also not to have them in full sunlight. Not Herbs should not be dried really in sunlight, apart from maybe some fruits and roots might be okay but leaves and flowers need to be at least away from direct light and preferably in the dark and difference that um, is obtained in the final dried product is enormous if you follow these um, steps and I find it a really it's a really beautiful thing to do because at all parts of the process literally from planting the seed you know and taking care to do it in the right time of the year and get the soil as good as you can and then harvesting mindfully and making sure the weather's right and treating the plant material carefully to avoid bruising and then drying in the best possible way what is actually happening there is apart from the fact that you're getting a much higher quality medicine that will keep for much longer you're also infusing 
that medicine with so much positive intention because your heart is really in creating the best possible medicine for your patients or for your customers of your products. And it's a really beautiful alchemy of intention and practical mindfulness. And I'm a big, big fan of it. Yes, I completely agree. There's just something very different about holding you know, you can always see a difference visually a lot of times between something you've grown and dried yourself versus something you've bought commercially. But there's also just a big energy difference in terms of how it feels to me. And also, you know, if I make a tea or a tincture for a client, I don't really know how to explain it, but I almost feel like I have more confidence in it when it's come from something that I grew with my own hands from seed all the way to that, you know, bottle or tea bag at the end. It's just such an amazing experience. And I just feel it's like a little piece of me going out the door and and it's like sending your kids off to school for the first time or something like go, go off and make the world a little bit better, you know? So it sounds like some of the biggest issues that home growers might run into with drying would be, uh, would you say it's over drying, drying too long and possibly drying at too high of a temperature? Is that what you normally see? Well, that, but also the opposite. So Mm. uh, I give another example where until you get used to drying, it can look as though the plants are totally dry, but there is an art to being able to feel whether something is thoroughly dry. And somebody messaged me or commented the other day on my Instagram and said they were so upset because they'd, gathered some hawthorn berries and they dried them and they were sure they were dry and they'd stored them and they smelt amazing and they'd put them in an airtight jar and they're really happy. And then two or three days later, they opened the lid and noticed that they were all covered in like a green mold developing oh, no. and they smelt musty and the poor person was so gutted. And, and, and so, of course, I think what's happened there is that they looked dry, but they weren't 100% dry. Or what can happen is if the receptacle that you're storing them isn't fully dry, of course, they will reabsorb the moisture. So I'm not sure what really happened, but um, it's worth making sure things are dry and being especially careful with stuff like lemon balm and peppermint, because if you continue drying and drying, you will lose the medicinal properties. But things like hawthorn berries, you're not really going to drive off aromatics. So it's almost worth like dry them till you think they're dry and then do a little bit more. <laughs> and then, you know, when it's the first time that you've ever done it, check them every day for a week. Mm-hmm. and feel them and if you think oh that feels a little bit I can feel there's a little bit it's getting a bit squashy again you know you can just put them back in the dryer again because it it won't have gone and t- turned to um, mold by then you know you're just catching it in time so until you've learned and are confident you can do that and the other thing that really catches people out is calendula because calendulas can seem really dry but that central green calyx is quite a reservoir of moisture and your dried calendulas are never 
totally brittle. You know, there's this sort of oiliness to them. And it's quite an art to feel these green calices and to be able to judge, yeah, that's dry. Or mm, that's still, I think that's got moisture. And of course, when you put these things into an airtight container, which um, I'm absolutely adamant that we need to store these things in airtight containers when they're totally dry, um, to have them in something that allows them to breathe, what what happens there is that when the ambient humidity gets high in, for example, in the nighttime, they will reabsorb moisture and then in the day they will lose it. And every time that fluctuating humidity level happens, you're losing medicinal properties. So for a herbal practice where you're creating medicines, it's important to dry thoroughly, to dry skillfully and to store them in the dark in an airtight container and with calendula if you're not sure that they're dry just do that thing that i've just suggested of store them in the dark and then check them out every day for you know a few days to, to make sure that they're not getting moisture they're not absorbing more moisture from each other because once they're stored that is what happens that the moisture level in that plant material kind of evens out so you have got this potential reservoir of moisture in the green calices that you want to avoid sort of um, spoiling everything else. So, yeah, it is, a, it is an acquired art. And I tried to pass on some of the potential pitfalls in my book so that other people didn't have to have problems. But I think in the end, it is a bit of a thing that we need to learn from experience. Definitely. And those are great tips. And there are, you know, tons more in your book, which, which I love. Like you said, though, it is something to learn from experience. And unfortunately, a lot of times the the experiences that stick with us the most and are most formative are sometimes the negative ones where we learn the hard way and we've unfortunately had something spoil. Here in Tennessee, our humidity is so high that I have to be very skillful in, in timing things going through the dehydrator because if I leave something out um, after the dehydrator has shut off and I don't get it into it, like you said, an airtight container very quickly, there's just so much humidity in the air. It just starts to reabsorb. And then I'm back to having soft plant material again. I really relate to that. And I have my little routine in here where I will be seeing patients and in the back room the dryers are whirring away you know like <laughs> much 24 hours a day in the summer yep. and then they but they have the timer so i will tend to reorganize the trays you know take the bottom one to the top and stuff before i go home in the evening i'll kind of set them off again or put new stuff on and then you have this situation where maybe the, the dryer has shut off for a couple of hours before I come back in again the next day. And I always, even if it feels as though it's dry, I will always give it another hour because that has had that time to reabsorb. And it is pretty humid here, you know, in the UK, mm -hmm. it's often raining. So I always have this thing of just, it, it might seem dry, but I'm gonna give it another hour and then store it warm from the dehydrator. Right. And I mean, there's nothing more heartbreaking than, you know, growing something from seed, harvesting it, and then having it go bad later. I also often encourage people, if they're just, you know, getting to have these experiences for the first couple of times, 
to store their herbs in very small batches, small jars, so that if, if one does turn, then hopefully you didn't lose your entire calendula harvest for the season. Um, what a good idea. <laughs> it's a little more finicky to have, you know, lots of different jars to check, but then hopefully if, if one slips through, hopefully you still have some more, you know, of that herb because it's so sad to, you know, especially for a lot of our listeners are really trying to be more self-sufficient and growing more and more of whatever they can. So it would just, it would be terrible <laughs> to, to lose your whole harvest of a particular plant. So one of the things I was going to ask you was about storing herbs after processing, but I feel like we've kind of covered that, but going back into just the love for growing all of our plants for anyone out there who maybe either does or doesn't have any gardening experience, but maybe it's mostly been with vegetables and now they're interested in getting more into the herbal side of things. Do you have any favorite herbs that you like to suggest for new gardeners? Yeah, well, I, I'm not allowed. I, I don't want them hearing me saying that I've got a favorite. <laughs> no, no, not, not your favorite, just favorites to suggest to others. How about that? Yeah, that's good. But actually, um, I'm not going to, I'm not trying to duck the question too much, but I really think the best thing to grow is something that you feel drawn to. So, yeah. for example, we were talking about calendula and that is such a sunny herb and so, so wonderful as a healer in many different situations. And if you like the idea of, of growing an annual and you have the space to do it and you like the process of seeing the plant develop from seed, you know, you really can't get better than, than growing a bit of calendula. But if you are somebody that is maybe new to gardening and you, or, or you you would love the idea of growing more herbs, but your time is taken up on your vegetable area or um, you're worried that you won't be able to sort of devote a lot of time to it, then why not plant perennials? You know, there's um, the, the medicinal shrubs and trees like cramp bark and um, hawthorn and elder, you know, you can maybe, if you've got room to plant them around the edge of your property, that's amazing. You know, you've got the whole medicinal hedge that you could have there. Mm -hmm. And also there's the whole, you know, the perennial type of me medicines like, um, I'm just trying to think what's the best example. Well, agrimony is one of my big ones that I grow, Agrimonia eupatoria. And the reason that I grow that is because the dried commercially produced agrimony does not have the same aromatic qualities. So I like to grow that. And it's so easy to grow because once it's established, you know, it's just going to come back every year. All you have to do is just maybe weed around it and you know, in the spring and again in the autumn, it's really easy. And of course, there's so many perennials, aren't there? There's lemon balm and rosemary and the mints and herbs are pretty low maintenance, really. They're a bit of a cheats um, gardening <laughs> <laughs> thing, which suits me very well because I don't always have time to have the most beautiful allotment. And well, I think maybe it is beautiful, but it's in a kind of more um, naturalistic um, looking sort of vibe compared to all the very neat rows of cabbages and carrots and things that, that are next to me. I'm the kind of wild card. I was talking to Maggie, that's like the chairman of our allotment association, and she has the neatest, most beautiful allotment you have ever seen. It's like each vegetable is 
more or less measured with a rule you know how that it and it really is pleasing to the eye because it's so ordered and there's not a weed in sight and everything and I said to her Maggie my allotment is you know and your allotment we're like yin and yang aren't we and she laughed and then she said but I think yours is beautiful Lucy <laughs> so. yeah, they both they both have so much beauty to share and I love your suggestion um, to focus maybe on some perennials because it is, it does feel magical to have them, you know, come back. Like when we first got onto this property, I put up a bed near the house of, you know, just perennial herbs and just not having to do, like you said, not having to do that additional work the following years, maybe just a little bit of weeding, but they come back on their own. And I think if someone is used to doing uh, vegetable gardening with, you know, just annual vegetables, it can feel pretty magical to get that experience with perennials for the first time and go, Ooh, like this, this feels like a game changer. Like I don't have to reseed this every year. It's just going to come right back. Yeah. So if you're in a semi-permanent place where you can, you know, put some perennials in, I think that's a great suggestion. Thank you. And the other thing just to jump in as well is I think another area to look at for people is we have so many medicinal plants that are endangered. And if you have the, the room to try and grow some of these more difficult to get hold of herbs, that is very rewarding. You know, things like, well, golden seal and black cohosh and, you know, some of these other ones, it's, it's wonderful to grow those even on a very small scale, even just in a couple of pots, because you can feel like you're contributing to the health of the planet as well as growing something really beautiful. Absolutely. Uh, a thousand percent on that. And plant conservation is definitely something we talk about here on the show pretty regularly. And I'm glad you mentioned that because it had sort of been in the back of my mind to bring that up with you because I noticed you have grown a few slippery elm trees yourself there on your allotment, which I don't know in the UK if that's an at-risk plant, but it definitely is here in the US. And so I was very interested in that. Could you speak about that, working with that plant a little bit? Yeah. I mean, um, slippery elm doesn't grow in the UK and, um, there's there are a couple of specimen trees um there was a specimen tree at Kew Gardens but that uh, I believe there was one one at Kew and one at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh and I can't remember which one it was but one of them fell in a storm and it was lost and there are very very few there's no mature slippery elms here as that I know of and there's a couple of other herbalists who've told me that they've recently sort of planted some from seed and they're just beginning to mm. grow. And so I was really pretty excited because I imported some seed from the US and I, I thought I'm going to see if I can grow it over here because I don't like the idea of buying in something that is so um, endangered, it's at risk and you can't always be sure that it has been harvested sustainably from cultivated stock. And, right. you know, obviously one tries, but it's kind of seems to me that if I want to continue using it in my practice, then I need to take responsibility and try my best to source it myself. And so I grew these plants from seed. Luckily they grew and I planted them with a view to, managing them by coppicing because I don't have my own land and I can't just grow something and think I'm going to plant a tree and it's going to be there for you know years and years and so last year was the first time that I took a harvest and I was 
worried that taking a harvest from basically a five or six year old plant might not have sufficient of the bark, you know, the inner bark to be medicinally active. But as soon as I started scraping the bark, I knew that it was okay. I was so thrilled. I could have cried with delight. You know, it was a really momentous experience to think this is probably the first harvest of medicinal slippery elm in the UK. And now that I've seen it's possible, I can go ahead and really encourage others to do the same and try and, you know, take cuttings and share the stock with people or encourage them to source seeds. And I really think it could be a game changer if more people would grow it. Yes, absolutely. That, oh, that really just warms my heart. And I'm so happy and thrilled to hear that. And then also just that, you know, you're going to encourage others to grow it as well. That's so beautiful. So I want to be respectful of your time. I know we've been talking for a bit over an hour now, and this has been lovely. Um, But in addition to your wonderful book, where else can people find you to follow your work? And are there any upcoming courses or projects that you'd like to share? All right. Well, um, I do a lot of um, sharing on my social media. So that's at Marobolin Clinic on Instagram and it's Marobolin Clinic on Facebook. And I also have a Patreon scheme. Um, and maybe, I don't know if you can put the link on after this. Absolutely. Um, it's such a long link, I couldn't possibly. <laughs> um, and um, I guess, you know, I'm not actively offering courses at the moment. I don't have an upcoming course because my... Um, my mission is to sort of really share as widely as possible. And by doing the in-person courses, I can only accommodate so few people. So my main way of sharing is through the Patreon scheme and also through um, my book. And I'm writing my second book at the moment. And that's going to be all about looking at the herbs that I work with as individuals rather than as lists of constituents and conditions that they treat you know they are all individual beings so I'm kind of having a whale of a time diving even deeper into my herbs to be able to convey that knowledge to people but it's going to be a while it's still very much in process oh wow but I am already so excited to read it because (laughs) your first book was wonderful it's definitely got a permanent place on my bookshelf here and (laughs) yeah I just Thank you so much for everything that you have shared. And we will definitely put all of Lucy's social media and Patreon links in the show notes. And her publisher, Eon Books, has also been kind enough to share a discount code for anyone that is interested in purchasing the book. So we'll have that information there as well in the show notes. And I know holidays are coming up. So if you need some suggestions for a gift that folks might want to get you, I think this book would be an amazing addition to everyone's library and hopefully over the winter months, give us a chance to do some dreaming and maybe you'll get to sketch out your first herb garden. So Lucy, thank you so much for being here with us today and just sharing all of your knowledge. And we'll definitely keep following along with you on social media as well. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Sarah. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. And and yeah, just thank you. It's great. I love having the chance to talk about this subject. And it's so nice to be able to share it more widely. 
I hope y'all enjoyed that as much as I did. I loved getting to talk to Lucy and hear her story and just get so much wonderful information from her about her work with the plants. And as I mentioned, that discount code, if you're interested in getting a copy of her book at 20% off, will be in the show notes. Wishing y'all a wonderful week ahead. We'll be back soon with some solo episodes for the rest of December. All right. I hope you're doing well out there. And as always, keep your hands dirty and your heart open.